Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, as President Trump nears the end of his first year in office, why the next few weeks will be crucial to his presidency, and how the armed robbery of a radio shack has led to what could become the most important case on electronic privacy ever to go before the Supreme Court. It's Monday, November 27th. Maggie Haberman, can you tell us about this meeting on Tuesday at the White House? Sure. So President Trump is meeting with the four congressional leaders from both parties, the majority and minority. It's Republican Paul Ryan, Democrat Nancy Pelosi, Republican Mitch McConnell, and Democrat Chuck Schumer. There are a lot of issues that are on the table legislatively for all of these leaders to discuss with each other and with the president. The most urgent and really the reason for this meeting to begin with is to discuss passing another continuing resolution to keep funding the government after December 8th. That's when it's set to shut down, which would be difficult at best for the political futures of all five people in that room. We had a very good meeting with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. Uh, We agreed to a uh, three-month extension on debt ceiling. So the last time these leaders met, the president stunned the leaders from his own party and essentially pulled the rug out from under them. In a stunning move, President Trump bucking his own party, cutting a deal with Democrats to provide disaster relief funding, extend the debt ceiling, and fund the government for three months. By siding with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi on their set of priorities in terms of a a deal to keep the government running. Hmm. This had a a longer-term impact on the president's relationship with Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. We walked out and everybody was happy. Not too happy, because you can never be too happy. But they were happy enough. House Speaker Paul Ryan lashed out at Democrats. I think that's ridiculous and disgraceful that they want to play politics with the debt ceiling at this moment. They were furious. Um, That's a word. They were very, very unhappy. So nearly three months later, they're back for another meeting and they have to agree on a plan to fund the government yet again. What's happened in the time since that initial meeting that's meaningful here? Almost nothing has happened, Michael, and that that is the easier question to answer. You have Republicans in control of both houses of Congress and Republicans in control of the White House, and they have not managed to pass 
any significant legislation Mm. beyond just keeping the government funded. The president often likes to talk about his presidency in historic terms. We've signed more bills, and I'm talking about through the legislature, than any president ever. For a while, Harry Truman had us. And he keeps claiming that there has been some record amount of legislation passed. And now I think we have everybody, Mike. I, I better say think, otherwise they'll give you a Pinocchio. And I don't like those. I don't like Pinocchios. There's no signature piece of legislation. And right now they are just focusing on tax reform and trying to get that done. I think after health care, taxes are going to be so easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it really... Tax reform was the issue that the president wished he had tackled first instead of health care reform. So now you have the White House making a push for what has always been the president's own personal main priority. And they know that they have a limited window to get it done. They know with all of these things that the, the clock is ticking. But with tax reform, it is incredibly, incredibly important to the president. However, there are not enough Republican votes to pass it just with a majority. And there is really a very, very slim to none chance of getting Democratic votes. This afternoon, the president returns right here to Washington, where he is facing what might be the busiest and most defining month of his first year in office. With no major legislative accomplishments to date, President Trump and congressional Republicans are now racing to pass tax reform before the end of the year. As it happens, uh, you know, this meeting must take place because a a continuing resolution to keep funding the government must take place. But it is coming at a really crucial time in the life of this presidency. It is the final month of the calendar year. It is the final month before the holiday recess when Congress goes home, when they get a feel for where their voters are in their individual districts. And it is the final month where the president has a chance to pass something like tax reform, which is his big ticket item. So McConnell and Ryan go into this meeting on Tuesday Looking at the end of year one, and they're worried about tax reform, their last hope this year of a big legislative victory, and they need to prevent a government shutdown. What might they have to give Democrats in order to prevent that shutdown? Look, I think that Republicans are going to have to give a little bit on something that they don't necessarily want to. I think that it could look like a bipartisan fix for health care. It could be on something like a fix for DACA, where they give Democrats, if not everything they want, something that would be allow the Democratic Party leaders to claim a victory. So in this final month of Trump's first calendar year as president, in trying to protect themselves and prevent a shutdown, Republicans might end up providing a legislative concession to Democrats. And their main priority, which is tax reform, is not at all a sure thing. So could all of this effectively leave Democrats with more legislative energy than Republicans headed into this next year? Look, if Republicans cannot pass tax reform, that's going to be a significant loss. Republicans can't quite decide whether they are better off with or without this tax reform bill, but they have telegraphed publicly that they believe they are better off passing it. If it gets passed, Democrats are going to pound them heading into 2018. There are going to be some pretty easy-to-write commercials. That is going to make life easier for Democrats, certainly politically and potentially legislatively, depending on what comes up next year. Maggie, thank you very much, as always. Michael, thank you for having me. We'll be right back. 
This fall, history is happening. September 14th, 2021. Hamilton, the Tony, Grammy, Olivier, and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, returns to Broadway. Tickets are on sale now. Performances begin September 14th. Hamilton, back on Broadway at the Richard Rogers Theater. Learn more at hamiltonmusical.com. New tonight at 11, Detroit police hope this surveillance video right here will help them catch two teens. The latest Radio Shack robbery in Metro Detroit, this time in Royal Adam Liptak, what happened on December 13th, 2010? A gang of armed robbers who would go on to perform many armed robberies decided that they would rob a Radio Shack store in Detroit. Armed and dangerous. One of these kids was armed with an automatic weapon. A couple weeks before Christmas, rounded up the employees, took some of them to the back, forced others of them to put a bunch of smartphones into bags. Carrying garbage bags of smartphones right out of the store. What they really wanted was the Apple iPhone, and they got away with dozens of them. They did this at least eight more times in and around Detroit, hitting Radio Shack's T-Mobile stores and trafficking in the smartphones that they stole. And all of this was masterminded by a guy named Tim Carpenter, who supplied the guns and waited outside in a lookout and getaway car. What do we know about Tim Carpenter? Tim Carpenter, known as Little Tim, to distinguish from his cohort and half-brother Big Tim, (laughs) was not a super capable criminal. One of his confederates was nabbed, flipped on him, and identified the folks who were doing all these robberies. And what evidence did prosecutors have in this case? Well, they had testimony from his confederates. They had testimony from witnesses. But importantly, they helped make their case with, ironically, Carpenter's own cell phone. Police got a hold of cell phone records used to make the case against him. Now the U.S. Federal investigators obtained months worth of his cell phone location records, which helped show where Carpenter was when he made and received calls in the general area of those robberies. So as we walk around, make calls, check emails, search the web on our phones, they connect to cell phone towers. And companies keep records of each of those connections. And that provides a kind of time machine. You can look back and Hmm. see where I've been over months and months. And prosecutors were able to establish that his phone, at least, and presumably he, were near the sites of these robberies. That evidence helped lead to his conviction. Timothy Carpenter will spend the next 116 years in federal prison. But this is it normal for prosecutors to use this kind of information from a cell phone in criminal cases? It's become very common. They love it. And why do they love it? Because it's, you know, it doesn't rely on the testimony of someone whose memory might be hazy, who might have been terrified, who might have reason to lie because they've gotten a sweet plea deal. Hmm. It's objective. Juries like. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed today to hear a major privacy case involving cell phone data. Supreme Court has agreed to decide whether police can use cell phones to track people without a warrant. The justices are going to hear an appeal from a serial robber who maintains that police unlawfully used his cell phone records to get a conviction. William Pitts with more... In a lot of ways, this sounds like a pretty straightforward criminal case. How did the case of Timothy Carpenter make its way, Adam, to the Supreme Court? The Fourth Amendment bars unreasonable searches and seizures. And in some settings, for the search to be reasonable, you have to get a warrant. And in this case... They didn't get a traditional warrant. Hmm. And the question in the case is, should they have gotten a warrant? The cell phone companies provided 12,898 locations for Carpenter. And a lot of people would say there's some amount of data that's so rich and detailed 
that it starts to be a real privacy violation that should have the Fourth Amendment's warrant protections kick in. In the case of Carpenter versus the United States. It's sort of the latest battle over cell phones. A couple of years ago, the Supreme Court said the police need a search warrant if they stop and arrest someone to look in their cell phones. Now this is the next big question. Do the police need a search warrant to track you with your cell phone? Wireless uh, so carriers receive thousands of such requests each year. So, so far, far, the courts maintain that the Fourth Amendment does not apply here because customers voluntarily gave up that info to phone companies. And Adam, what's the government's case here and its rationale for having not sought a warrant? The government says, listen, this is not your information. This is information in the hands of a third party. Hmm. You have voluntarily decided to share with your cell phone company where you are, and you have no particular rights in that at all. That's not even a search the government says. And there are old cases supporting that completely. Fascinating. So that when you call somebody on a landline, the government is free to get information about what number you called, how long you talked for, sort of what people call outside the envelope information. They can't wiretap the substance of what you're talking about. But how long you talked for and with whom you talked, that doesn't require a warrant. That's not even a search. That's so-called third-party material. And the government says this is the same thing. This is just information you've decided to share with your cell phone company by dint of walking around with your cell phone, and therefore the Fourth Amendment is not implicated at all. So what the government is saying is that when Timothy Carpenter or any of us move around town using our cell phones, we're basically volunteering this information to the companies who provide our cell phone service, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile, and therefore it belongs to those companies, not to us. Exactly right. Let's figure there's a human being eyewitness. At every place, there happens to be a cell phone tower. And that human being eyewitness witnesses Tim Carpenter doing whatever he's doing. Nobody thinks the police need a warrant to get that information. They're free to ask those people what they like. You can think of the cell phone tower as a similar kind of witness. And again, if you do, then maybe you don't need a warrant to get information about what that cell phone tower knows. I guess, though, the question is, do people know that they're voluntarily giving over this information when they use their cell phone in the same way that they understand that they may be seen by a witness on the streets? Is there the same level of awareness? That is actually the key question. So Fourth Amendment law turns on whether there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. And the government says, of course you know that your cell phone company is tracking your every movement. And I'm just not sure, Michael, that that's true. Or maybe in some mm. general sense you know it's true, but you don't know the, the details of it. And I don't think you have the same visceral in-your-gut knowledge that your cell phone is recording all kinds of information about you that you know when you walk into a shopping mall, people are going to see you there. I don't know that that's the same thing. So this could theoretically affect a lot of people who are in jail. Yes. And as importantly, it could going forward affect how we think about government access to all kinds of information in the digital age. This could easily be the most important case on electronic privacy the Supreme Court has ever decided. It may have started with some you know, not very sophisticated robberies of all things of radio shacks. <laughs> but there's good reason to think that the Supreme Court will have to come to terms with an entirely different kind of information environment 
than the people who drafted and adopted the Fourth Amendment in the 18th century could possibly have imagined. Adam, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear opening arguments in the case, Carpenter versus United States, on Wednesday. Here's what else you need to know today. Representative John Conyers of Michigan, the longest-serving member of Congress, is stepping down from his position as the top Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee over allegations that he sexually harassed a female member of his staff. In a statement issued on Sunday, Conyers said he would not resign from Congress, but instead would fight the allegations and try to reclaim his spot on the committee. Conyers' announcement comes as Congress prepares to vote this week on legislation sponsored by Congresswoman Jackie Speier and Senator Barbara Comstock that would reform how Congress handles claims of sexual harassment. If a victim would like to report sexual harassment, they have 180 days to do so with the Office of Compliance. Once that claim is processed, victims are required to undergo 30 days of counseling, then 15 days to decide if they would like to pursue mediation. That is another 30-day process that is confidential and would either result in a settlement or yet another 30-day period. You get the idea. That system, which was used by Conyers and his accuser, has been widely criticized for protecting lawmakers through a drawn-out process and layers of secrecy. This is not a victim-friendly process. And one victim who I spoke with said, you know, the process was almost worse than harassment. So this is an absolutely priority that we must focus on in terms of fixing the system. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. When times became uncertain, Womply pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Womply has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Womply helps small businesses thrive. Visit Womply.com to learn more.